Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We all use the internet, and there's an idealistic principle out there, the principle of net neutrality, which, according to some, is coming under attack. Here's how Letitia Miranda, writing in The Nation, describes net neutrality. She says it guarantees a level playing field in which Internet users do not have to pay Internet service providers more for better access to online content, and content generators do not have to pay additional fees to ensure users can access their websites or apps. In other words, all Internet traffic should be treated equally. That's an ideal which has taken hold, and the Federal Communications Commission is considering changes to current rules, which is prompting warnings from several groups about potential erosion of free speech and possible destruction of the Internet. We're going to see what you think. You can call 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com. We have with us in studio Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group in Logan, who joins us again. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. And uh, on the line from Hong Kong is Joshua Steimley. He lives in Hong Kong, where he's opening a branch office of his online marketing firm, MWI, which is headquartered in Salt Lake City. And his recent article in Forbes is titled, Am I the Only Techie Against Net Neutrality? Josh Steimley, welcome to the program. Glad to be here, Tom. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? That's correct. Steimley rhymes with timely. Okay, very good. Uh, do, you, do you prefer Josh or Joshua? Josh is just fine. Okay. Uh, Jonathan, I wonder if you would give us the thumbnail sketch of uh, where we are now with regard to rules for net neutrality and what the FCC is possibly okay. proposing. So recently, the FCC has taken control to a degree, uh, and and they've said, all right, we're going to control this, and we're going to enforce this net, the concept of net neutrality, which says, again, all traffic is the same. I, I take – and I, I – Obviously, I don't want to do it to the introduction, but I take a little issue with the description that the person you who wrote that that you read. It's not about providing access to a service. It's about uh, prioritizing access so that you you get a, you know, again, you, for your, Netflix is a good example. A lot of people are familiar with it. You're streaming that movie. If you have a low priority access, you might get more buffering. You have to wait longer. It's not that you can't do it. It's that the quality of service is not as good. Um, and so and that so that's the issue. It says all traffic is going to be the same. You're and you don't have the ability or the right to prioritize anything. So the FCC took control of that. There was a big fight about that a couple of years ago. And I think Josh and I share some opinions on that and we'll get to them. Uh, but now the reason they took control to enforce this net neutrality, they're saying, well, never mind. What we're going to do is we're going to allow carriers to prioritize certain types of traffic, but only under our control, which is sort of the opposite of why they took control in the first place. Hmm. Uh, Josh Steimley, I'm wondering, I want to follow up. Um, and Jonathan is saying that this is not about access. But I could see if you if you allow companies to prioritize, and perhaps it becomes a money thing, uh, eventually if you take that far enough down the line, it becomes harder and harder to access certain things. So, so there's a That's potential bad consequence. That is the concern. The proponents of net neutrality are concerned that companies that don't have the money are not going to get that priority access. Therefore, their websites are going to be slower than their competitors, and they're not going to have a level playing field. So Netflix, as a giant, is going to be able to pay for priorit prioritization 
of their service, whereas a startup that is providing a competing service won't have as much money as Netflix, won't be able to pay for that priority service. Their service will be slower, and therefore it's going to entrench services like Netflix, and it's going to harm small startups. That's the uh, story that the proponents of net neutrality are putting forward. Mm. And uh, I, I, I was just thinking this morning that the reason there's so much emotion about this, I believe, is the the Internet is sort of a repository for a lot of ideals. A lot of people are very protective of the these ideals. Level playing field. I wonder if you see the same thing. Yes, it's it, today the inter, access to the Internet is considered by many people a fundamental right. And it's seen as access to the world, to information, to knowledge, and for somebody to not have access to that by many people is seen as essentially cutting people off from civilization and from human progress. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that sentiment to a certain extent that the Internet is a great tool and it's given us all amazing access to the world around us and the world that is far beyond us. And I, like John, and I'm sure many other people, want as many people as possible to have easy access to the internet and fast internet to the access, fast access to the internet. Um, so there are a lot of things that proponents of net neutrality and others who may not be exactly proponents of net neutrality have in common as far as the goals, it's really the way that we arrive at that destination. That's where we have some differences of opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. The, the, I, I think most people share that ideal. By the way, it's it's just amazing to me that the, the advance of technology, we're speaking to you in Hong Kong through voice over internet protocol. It, it's sounding crystal yep. clear. Um, and so that's just one example. By the way, thank you very much for staying up late. I think you're 14 hours ahead, so you're in the 11 o'clock hour there. So I uh, appreciate that. That's nothing new for me. Okay, okay, <laughs> sounds good. Uh, so, Jonathan, the, the the ideal is that everyone should have uh, access to the Internet and as equal access as you can get because that is your ticket to today's world yeah, of knowledge. Exactly. Now, there's, there's two parts to that. The first one says that that this great resource that we have is now in a fundamental right to be able to access. Obviously, not to be provided to you, but the ability to access something, access this information is a fundamental right. And I can agree with that. But we have to realize how it got to be the thing that it is. And it got to be there by being this decentralized, you know, to analogize it, wild west of technology. Anything could be put out there. There was no centralized regulation other than some very simple things such as the DNS, you know, the naming conventions and how the names worked, um, uh, just because y you got to have a little bit of organization or people have, people have to talk on the same language. And that's one of the ways we accomplish it. So other than that, we got there by avoiding this central control. Now, the thought that suddenly prov um, adding central control to that is going to is going to do something different than what central control does. All the all the other examples we have, I think, is is misguided. But secondarily, what we have is um, it's a finite resource. There is not an unlimited amount of bandwidth out there. Um, there's more demand than there is product during peak times, and because of that, 
uh, you know, it's like any kind of a supply and demand scenario. When there's not enough, you have to find some way of prioritizing one over another. Do you slow it down for everybody? Or in the instance of the call that we're doing right now between here and Hong Kong, we say, well, this type of traffic needs a prioritization because it's time sensitive, whereas many other types of traffic are not or, or less so. Uh, and as such, so you, you, you have a reason why prioritization of traffic makes sense from a technical perspective of, well, why wouldn't I want to prioritize my voice over IP or my video traffic or these types of things. And we'll just say static web pages that don't really matter as far as time goes can be set to a lower priority. Now, again, keeping in mind, we're talking milliseconds of priority differences, not, you know, not some huge, great difference. Um, most of that, most of the waiting we get is simply based on the size of the connection we have, uh, not necessarily about any kind of prioritization. Just timely. I wonder if we could follow up with you, and, th and then I want to get into the uh, your article in Forbes and why you're against the proposed rules. Uh, so Jonathan is talking about milliseconds, not much difference if if we do prioritization. I'm sure opponents to this will say, "Well, that's the to use another metaphor the <laughs> the the camel's nose under the tent. If we, if we change it that much, if we introduce the principle, then it becomes a, a bigger and bigger chasm." between poor and rich, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. And again, I am an opponent of net neutrality. And I should clarify, I'm an opponent of net neutrality legislation. I'm not an opponent of net neutrality as a principle or as an idea. I'm actually ambivalent about that. But I am opposed to the government getting in and creating legislation uh, that upholds that principle or enforces that principle uh, through government force. Hmm. But the proponents of net neutrality, their standpoint is that if you allow these telecoms, and we're talking about Comcast, Time Warner, these large internet service providers, if we allow them to prioritize, then they're effectively going to hold people hostage, not us so much as consumers, but companies. So they'll say, Netflix, you're paying us money, you get priority traffic. This other service, you're not paying us, and so we are actually going to slow you down, and you either pay up or we're going to make you slow, and you're going to go out of business. Hmm. This is what proponents of net neutrality are saying is going to happen. Whether that would actually happen or not is debatable, but that's what proponents of net neutrality are saying they fear will happen. If you just joined us, we're talking obviously about net neutrality. Uh, FCC has some proposed new rules. It's got a lot of people up in arms, and we wonder what you think. The number is 1-800-826-1495, and you can reach us at upraxcess at gmail.com. We have with us in studio uh, Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group in Logan, and Joshua Steimley lives in Hong Kong. He's opening a branch there of his online marketing firm, MWI, which is headquartered in Salt Lake City. Uh, so we appreciate uh, both these gentlemen being with us. So, so let's address this head-on, uh, Josh Steimley. Your article has a great title, Am I the Only Techie Against Net Neutrality? Uh, I think we maybe found another one. Yes, yes. Uh, I, Jonathan, we, I think we're both. Here. And again, I, I feel I share his opinion. It's not about the concept. It's about the control and enforcement of it to say you're not allowed to prioritize traffic regardless of what your reasons are. So, uh, Josh Timely, tell us uh, maybe list some of the bullet points. Why are I think uh, top of the list would be you're skeptical of of government, 
government regulation in, in this, this case, and government doesn't belong here. Yes, and you brought up the analogy of the camel's nose in the tent, and that's something I am concerned about. And from a high-level perspective, we, with proponents of net neutrality, are asking the government to step in and pass legislation and create laws to force telecoms like Comcast and Time Warner to not prioritize traffic, but to treat all traffic equally, which sounds very nice, equal treatment, we like words like that. And Comcast and Time Warner are huge companies, they're big business, nobody feels sorry for them, so it's easy to villainize these companies. And I have no love for these companies. I have had terrible experiences with Comcast, I'm no friend of these companies, and I'd love to see smaller entrepreneurs come in and take over that industry and provide better services than these larger companies are providing. But I'm hesitant to say when we have these large, bad, big, bad telecoms that we should bring in the government and that the government's going to solve this problem. If these companies are a problem, it's that they're too big, they're too bureaucratic, and they're unable to provide the services we want. Well, that's a fairly accurate description of government. If we look at every industry that we complain about a lot, it tends to be education, healthcare, banking. These are industries that we complain about a lot, and these are all heavily regulated by government and have been regulated for decades. And so we're asking this organization that has a fairly bad track record of providing products and services to us to come in and regulate an industry that already has problems, which are largely the product of past regulation or favors that have been handed out by the government to these telecoms. So I look at the, t- as I look at the telecoms and I see a situation that is bad. I look at the government, I see a situation or an organization that's worse, and I say, how do we combine something that's bad with something that's worse and expect to get something that's better? Hmm. Jonathan Choate, uh, just following up, um, as Josh has outlined it, it's it's, <laughs> it's pick your poison. Exactly, and the, your analogy is great in that we've we've had this deregulated, or not, I can't say deregulated because it was never regulated. We've had this open network uh, where you're sticking content on there, and again, with some very minor exceptions, the traffic on there is completely uncontrolled. That's what's allowed it to explode into both the negative and positive sides of it um, is this lack of control. Uh, And so by by saying that the FCC now has the right to regulate how the traffic is done, that is putting more than just the nose under the tent. That's sticking its whole head in and saying we're here now and we've got control over what's going on. And we did so under what is, you know, it's always with the best of intentions, but what's going to be the long-term result when that control is now taken over by, again, by a national agency when we're talking about an international network. The attempts to control things of this nature tend to fail anyway because it's not a national thing. Um, you, you, They can regulate all they want, and if your content is from outside the country, it doesn't really matter. Um Secondarily, the whole impetus for it is somewhat spurious in that the major providers don't really care about the traffic shaping because they're uh, to 
you've got two things. You've got the major content providers and you have the major service providers, such as your Comcast, your Time Warner, your Verizon, those kind of people who provide end user internet access. The major providers are already bypassing internet traffic to put uh, access points within those individual networks. So if you're a Netflix subscriber and you um, have a Comcast connection as a good example here in Utah, I think that's probably a really common scenario. Your traffic from Netflix never flows outside of Comcast's network. It's completely self-contained because Netflix has linked directly into Comcast network. So they don't care how traffic is shaped between Comcast and some other provider because it never goes there. The ones that this really affects are the smaller regional providers where, um, you know, obviously Netflix isn't going to provide access directly through every small provider. That's just logistically impossible. So that those are the ones who it's going to affect more. It's the big companies that they don't not really going to do that for somebody like like Netflix because it's in their best interest to have them on their own network because then they're never having to share that traffic outside their own network. They have complete control of it anyway. And that's unaffected by net neutrality rules as it is. So the, the, the implications that are said for what having this traffic shaping is going to accomplish, I think, are overblown, in my opinion. Hmm. We are going to take a brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion on net neutrality. The FCC has, is proposing uh, new rules, um, and uh, that's got several groups up in arms. They're warning about everything from erosion of free speech to destruction of privacy, destruction of the Internet, and we're talking about this. Uh, everyone uses the Internet. I think we all have a dog in this fight. Um, we're piling up the metaphors. G- gentlemen, maybe, maybe we could uh, do it. <laughs> there we go. Uh, and you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. Utah State University and fellow land-grant institutions are celebrating 100 years of cooperative extension established by the Smith-Lever Act of 1914. The act was introduced to expand the vocational, agricultural, and home demonstration programs in rural America, with its network of county offices delivering educational programs at the grassroots level. Kudos to USU Extension for a century of responding to critical and emerging issues with research-based, unbiased information. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the magazine Edible Wasatch, encouraging readers to explore regional food systems by voting with their forks. Information and copy location information is at ediblewasatch.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our topic today is the open Internet and net neutrality. Level playing field is what we're talking about. That's the ideal. All Internet traffic should be treated equally. That's what many people think about the Internet. And that's what many people think uh, what we have. And that that's threatened by proposed rules, new rules. It's an open comment period, by the way. You can contact the FCC with your comments. Uh, the site is a little clunky. I went there uh, yesterday and and uh, had a hard time finding where to go to actually comment. I wasn't going to comment, but, but if I wanted to. Uh, but anyway, that's a parenthetical. Um, a lot of people are up in arms and saying that uh, privacy be damaged. 
Uh, possibly the uh, Internet as we know it could be destroyed. We're talking about this with uh, Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group in Logan and Joshua Steimley, who lives in Hong Kong, where he's opening a branch office of his online marketing firm, MWI, which is headquartered in Salt Lake City. Josh Steimley, I'd I'd like to uh, maybe compare and contrast uh, Internet use uh, between the, the United States and Hong Kong. I think you were in... The U.S., Utah, before you went out to Hong Kong? That's correct. I moved from Utah to Hong Kong one year ago. So in, in Utah, you'd sign up for Comcast, or you'd, uh, or you'd get the telephone company, or maybe you'd get Satellite Provider. Those would be your choices. A similar thing in Hong Kong? Somewhat similar. I was a subscriber to Comcast in Utah, and I had some interesting experiences there. I've written about those on my blog at donloper.com had some rather negative experiences with Comcast. Here in Hong Kong, they have a similar situation. There's not a lot of choice here. There's a main provider, and they do provide very fast, very affordable Internet if you live in the right areas. My wife and I happen to live in a slightly more rural area. We don't quite get that great of a service out here, but it's still it's usable. Do people worry about uh, content being filtered? I guess in China, you just sort of take it for granted that some content is being filtered. Right. And Hong Kong is a little bit different than China. In China, they have the, the great firewall of China, and certain websites like Facebook and Twitter can be blocked, amongst many others. Uh, here in Hong Kong, it's quite open. You can access anything, and everything is quite fast and speedy here, and we don't worry about censorship. But uh, it's not a – nobody is familiar with net neutrality here in Hong Kong. It's a foreign concept over here. Hmm. So uh, are, uh, is content being prioritized? I do not know if uh, content is being prioritized over here in Hong Kong. Uh, I'm not sure it's uh, so necessary over here to uh, look into that. Here in Hong Kong – uh, to give a sense of comparison, when I was using Comcast there in Utah, the package that I was using, I believe, was a 15 megabit connection. Here in Hong Kong, you can get a 100 megabit connection for half the price of the 15 megabit connection in Utah. And what people really care about, I think, is we net neutrality. People talk a lot about equality and keeping all the traffic the same and having this level playing field. And the reason I'm ambivalent about net neutrality is I don't really care if traffic is treated equally. I just want everything to be fast. So if some traffic faster and other traffic's not as fast, I don't care as long as it's all fast enough. If it's not fast enough, I'm going to complain to my ISP regardless of whether it's equal or not. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Jonathan, I wonder what your feeling is on that and, and the people that you talk to. Admittedly, yeah. both of you are sort of techies, and so speed might be a, a L- larger goal. Yeah, speed's always a factor. Um, and, you know, we've seen significant increases. It's hard to compare and contrast um, somewhere like Hong Kong, which, you know, a, a high-density, fairly geographically small area, um, to, you know, rural Utah. I live out in Wellsville, and, and I, I can't even get Comcast in my subdivision because they – you know, it's kind of out in the woods. So I've got, a you know, a local wireless provider out there, but I use Comcast at my office and we've got the fastest thing they offer. And it does great for the cost, especially when you compare it to the, uh, you know, former enterprise lines, you know, buying T3s, buying, you know, uh, fiber lines, et cetera. They're really expensive. And so we, we always have to realize that we live in a 
um, and a very sparsely populated area, um, which it just simply costs more to build and maintain infrastructure. Now, that's not necessarily to explain away why some of our products are considerably more than they are in other countries. Part of that is due to subsidization, although I don't think that's an issue in Hong Kong. I think they just are you're lucky enough to be in a self-contained central area where infrastructure can be maintained overall at a less cost per person, which is I wish we had that option here. But I also like the fact that I have lots of land. (laughs) So we always get a trade off. Um, You know, we we have different options and technology allows for more than one medium of transfer. I think that's what we often realize or, or we forget is, is that we as consumers have other options. Now, they aren't always perfect options. You know, Comcast, it, again, it, we're going with here in Utah, especially here in Cash Valley where we're at. It's really our only option for you know, the moderately priced fast internet. There's DSL services available if you're in the right physical location due to limitations in distance. Uh, It's also just not capable of being as fast. You can get really fast connections that are really expensive. So in that, trying to balance that, we've only got one choice, but that's only because, you know, we we have that choice, but we we have others if Comcast (laughs) makes us mad enough, I guess is the point. Mm -hmm. But Comcast got to be in that situation due to years and years of monopolies that were enforced by local governments. The reason you only have one cable provider is is the nature of running wire, the nature of the infrastructures. You can't have 40 different sets of cable running under the road in the way it's currently configured. Everybody has to come and dig their own stuff up. It's cost prohibitive to have these competing infrastructures. But again, fortunately, we have different types of infrastructures. We have DSL and telephone lines. We have cable. We have wireless. And I think those technologies have really pushed other providers to up their game because you got a fairly inexpensive wireless provider that can compete on most things, except when you get to bigger business. Hmm. What do you think the future is? Uh, we've seen technology advance at a, at a rapid pace, and uh, Internet is now provided by companies that were set up for cable, for telephone, yes. for, for other purposes. What do you think and for so, features? And, and they had that jump because they had these other infrastructures that were able to translate well into, you know, with some upgrades, with some changes. But over time, they translated into these mediums for just transferring this raw data. Um, I think fiber for the foreseeable future is the way it's going to have to go. The, the limitations on cable, the limitations on the copper wires just don't allow for much more growth um, without uh, without huge infrastructure changes. What I would my my perfect world is is that we would have more open access to the physical laying of infrastructure, and this requires a sea change. And I realize this is this is my this is my perfect world scenario. It unlikely to happen, but you know we get to play theory here. Um, if the roadways as they're being, you know, we, we're redoing roadways constantly. We're redoing the underground infrastructure constantly. If we were to make those more accessible for ease of running things in the future, rather than running a wire, we're running a pipe where you can run new wire and you can take old wire out, etc. To allow an easier adoption of new technologies, the, if we have an easier adoption of those technologies, then what we're going to see is we're going to see more competition. You, it's much more difficult to maintain a monopoly of like Comcast with cable if somebody else 
with a more moderate investment can come and provide a competing network, even on the same technology. It's going to it's going to allow markets to operate how they're supposed to operate, which is a competition basis rather than one monopoly fighting another monopoly with just a different medium. And it happens to be whichever technology is currently better for providing the product, because that's where we're at right now. Used to be telephone lines. And then when cable came in, they had the better medium due to the nature of the wire that they ran. It's kind of almost dumb luck, (laughs) but they had a better medium than telephone. Um, and when that happened, the, the, we used to be that telephone providers were your major source of Internet through dial up and then early DSL. And now that's very, very rarely used at this point by comparison. So we've got to look at the ability in the long run to change technologies more readily. And that's going to require cooperation from a lot of different groups in order to allow that. And again, in rural areas, we just have to realize there's a price we pay for being rural, which is. You know, we're not always going to have the latest and the greatest. In fact, we're always going to be a generation behind at least. And that's the nature of, well, being rural. Right, right. If you just joined us, we are talking about net neutrality, open Internet. We've gotten to talking about the future of the Internet. Our guests are Joshua Steinle, who is in Hong Kong. Uh, he's living there, opening a branch office of his online marketing firm, MWI, which is headquartered in Salt Lake City. And in studio, we have Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group in Logan. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Josh Steinle, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. Where, where do you think access, we'll get access to the Internet in the future, and, and where would you like this to go? Well, I think that we're actually going to, and this is maybe the only place where John and I may disagree, is I think that fiber actually has a fairly short-lived lifespan ahead of us. I think that wireless is going to be the future, not because it's necessarily faster than fiber, but I think it will be fast enough for all the applications that we need. And the cost of implementing wireless networks is dramatically lower than fiber because you don't have to dig up the ground, you don't have to run cables along poles. And when it comes to wireless internet right now, it's getting fairly fast. It's not quite as fast as we would all like it to be. But there are some interesting developments in wireless broadcasting technology. Samsung in the lab has created wireless technology so that you could download a Blu-ray movie in one second to your phone. And this is probably four or five years from being commercialized to the point where we all have it. But this is where we're going. Five to ten years from now, wireless transmission rates are going to be more than fast enough for 99% of the applications that we need the Internet for. And at that point, a lot of the restrictions on competition in the telecom industry are going to go away. Right now, cities restrict how many people can run cables along these poles because you don't want 20 companies running cables everywhere and digging up the ground. And so they restrict it and say, we're only going to allow Comcast or we're only going to allow Time Warner to run cable and dig up the ground. But once you get into wireless, this is no longer an issue. You can have 20, 30 competitors in an area. It's not a problem in terms of infrastructure or crowding or making a mess, essentially, in neighborhoods. And so this fight over bandwidth, I think, is a bit short-sighted because 
five to ten years from now, I believe the technological innovation will make this a moot point. It's not going to be an issue anymore. Hmm. You know, I partially agree and partially disagree from a technical perspective. Um, and, you know, now we finally something we can find something we can argue about <laughs> um, in that wireless actually has a lot of the same limitations that physical space has. Um, the frequencies that we use for transmission, they are limited and they do fight with each other. Everybody's had the experience of being in a fairly high densely populated area. And you look in your you look at your laptop, or your tablet, and you're looking for a wireless network and you see there's 73 of them to choose from. Um, when that happens, you have these wireless signals that are fighting one another and it decreases the quality of service for everybody. So there's lots of tricks we do to try to isolate networks, to try to do these other things. Um, but there's only so many frequency ranges that we can use in a given area. You can saturate an area with wireless providers. Now, again, that's a partial disagreement because I think you're right in that wireless technologies are going to be good in a lot of circumstances for that last mile functionality, getting from the provider to the end user. They're they're cheap to implement. Um, they're very they're relatively able, relatively responsive in the ability to adopt new new technologies quickly. But those are they are reliant upon the wired infrastructure to provide the links to those access points. So you've got to run fiber to the pole that provides your wireless. And so if you want to be, if you're more reliant upon wireless, you have to have more density of those towers, which means fiber to those towers, not necessarily to the home, although in established areas, I think that's the better solution. Um, but it, again, we it's, it's competition. We want lots of options. And fiber is the backbone. Fiber is how all of this stuff is running between states, between countries, between any of those. And that's going to be a long time because we have massive, massive investments in these fiber wires. And when they've laid them, you lay a lot of what's called dark fiber. You know, it's it's a light based transmission. So if it's being used, it's light, it's lighted. Otherwise, it's dark. So when somebody like Comcast lays a line between, you know, two populous areas they're laying this big block of fiber and they may only light up two or three pairs of wire or, or fiber cables and they may have 50 sitting in there unused ready to expand as traffic is needed because the the cost is often the laying of the infrastructure rather than the cost of the fiber not that fiber is exactly cheap but relatively it is so we we've got to have this backbone infrastructure and then the last mile consider, consideration to the end user is is sort of a different game especially with more mobility more rural areas that need to be serviced etc if we don't have our fiber backbone then our wireless stuff it gets kind of failure to launch scenario mm-hmm. we're going to take another break before we do and i want to get on to some other topics uh, after the break uh, first josh timely i, I wonder where do you where do you see internet access going? I I don't think you're seeing the dystopia that uh, some groups are warning about, in which we will have two tiers: the rich will have full internet access, and the poor will have limited internet access. Where, where do you see internet access going? No, I don't. I, I'm very positive about the future because I'm a believer in technology and I'm a believer in free markets. If we allow a free market to function then technology will get better and cheaper at the same time. We see this in every industry that has a free market that over time the quality goes up and the price goes down when competition is allowed. When we look at industries that 
the quality is going down and the cost is going up, again, going back to health care, public education, you see a lot of government involvement. You see that there is not a free market, nor has there been a free market for a long time. And so as long as we have that free market, I'm a believer that solutions will come out, maybe solutions that we haven't imagined yet, but ultimately we will all have faster internet at a lower price if we allow the market to do its job. Jonathan, same question. You know, and and I agree. It's it's about allowing that, that's the nature of a market. It's about competition, it's about new ideas, it's about people being able to try things out that maybe the conventional wisdom says won't work. And maybe they don't, maybe they do. In fact, a lot of times they don't. But that's okay. It's for the it's for people's ability to take an idea and bring it to market. And technology is such a perfect example of that. Of all of the products that are out there doing things that we don't even we couldn't have imagined 20 years ago. And it's that ability for letting the human creativity go wild and then act on it, not just come up with a thought, but do something about it. Mm. That is what it's what's gotten us to the point we are today. So I am very positive about it. The thing I'm negative about is if we cede control to regulating bodies, because I, I think that that is where we're going to see we're going to see problems with it is that when we stop allowing those markets to function the way they want to not the markets are perfect not that everything is going to be the way we want it to be it's a trade-off scenario and i think that that's the better of the two options yes there are certain things that are solved by regulation but they create new problems and often those problems are worse than what they're trying to solve and again on top of that often the thing they're trying to solve doesn't get solved and we've seen that we have I could spend the entire show doing example after example of that. But that's for another day. Um, allow the markets to function. And, yeah, we'll have ups and downs. We'll have periods of where these companies are saying, yeah, let's shape some traffic. But that's a temporary solution because we've got all this dark fiber in the ground. We've got all these things. The networks are growing, but there's growing pains. There's times where we have limits and we've got to find a way We've got to find a way to share those things appropriately. And I think the proper way to define who has priority, who has access is based on a market, not on a regulator. I think that's where we will see long term problems that we will regret is if we allow this to become another heavily regulated industry. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll have another 10 minutes left. And I want to transition to a couple of other interesting topics, at least fascinating to me, one of which is the Bitcoin phenomenon. Uh, this is, uh, you know, if you just came upon it, and maybe some of our listeners will with us after the break, it's in the realm of science fiction, but it's, uh, but it's real. And, and I notice uh, on your Twitter feed, Josh Steinle, there's a, there's a Bitcoin convention coming to Hong Kong? That's right. Hong Kong is, I don't know if I would say embracing Bitcoin, but they're very open to it, and there's a lot of innovation going on here. In fact, I met today with an entrepreneur who'd moved here from Australia to set up his new Bitcoin business here because of the regulation-free environment. We'll talk more about that following the break. Are you a discerning music fan? Bad songs about the Irish smiles, uh, what you got the Tura and the Lura, and more Lura. I mean, it's crazy, sung by men with high voices. Tired of the musically uninteresting? Want me to sing some of that to you here? Yeah, maybe later. How much later? Later, later. Okay. Were the overly earnest write songs, try to make the world a better place? There's a contradiction there, partner. We'll have you singing a different tune this weekend. Saturday evening at 6 and Sunday at noon on Utah Public Radio. 
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and area-info.net, providing a social media outlet for personalized press releases, business news, business events, and opinions. Information at area-info.net. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu, including an adobo marinated chicken panini with cilantro pesto, daikon sprouts, and provolone cheese. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have another 10 minutes left. You can join us in this conversation at 1 800 826 1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com is our email. We are talking with Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group in Logan and Joshua Steimley, who lives in Hong Kong, where he's opening a branch office of his online marketing firm, MWI, which is headquartered in Salt Lake City. We have been talking about open internet and net neutrality issues. I want to make a transition to digital currency. And I think a lot of people, there, there might be a generational divide here, people who know about Bitcoin and those who don't. Um, but uh, Josh Steinle, I wonder if you could uh, give us the, the thumbnail sketch, the explanation of what Bitcoin is. Sure. Bitcoin is a virtual currency. It's not a physical currency, although there are Bitcoins that actually are coins, but it's a virtual currency that exists online. And its main features are transparency and the fact that there is a limited, a set number of Bitcoins beyond which there will never be any more made. So whereas the Federal Reserve of the United States prints $80 billion a month, which inflates the currency, which makes the dollars that you and I hold worth less than they were worth a month ago, Bitcoin has a limit on the number of Bitcoins, and it will never grow beyond that. And so the idea is that it might, may hold value better that way. But also, with the transparency and the technology system behind Bitcoin, it allows for instant transactions anywhere in the world with complete transparency. And so the promise there is that you would be able to send money to somebody on the other side of the world virtually for free at very little risk to anything happening to that transaction with a currency that is more stable than other government-managed currencies. As I understand it, uh, there are quite a few product services you can pay for right now using Bitcoin. That's correct. In fact, there was a there's a uh, couple that was recently married there in Utah, and they uh, had a documentary that they're making living on Bitcoin for a few months. Interesting. I missed that. I'll have to look that up. Uh, Jonathan, the other part of this is you can, quote-unquote, mine yeah. for Bitcoin, you know, find, find new Bitcoin resources. It's a hard concept. to, to if, if you're not familiar with it, just accept that and realize you'll have to spend some more time to it because it's, it's a mental shift. You're not physically mining, obviously. You're digitally mining. Uh, but the, each Bitcoin is unique. Um, they are they're not counterfeitable. I mean, they're you can still steal them just like you can steal cash. You can you know take somebody's you know digital wallet. Uh, you know, it, it has no difference other than somebody, you know, getting the password to your online bank account and stealing your money there. So, yes, there's still there's still security issues, but each one is uncounterfeitable because they're unique. And the transactions are all known. Everybody knows all the transactions, but they're 
completely anonymous in that you don't know who the people are who do the transactions. So again, it's it's different. It's this mental shift. There's a lot of things you can buy with them. I've bought uh, silver with them. That's what I've been mining bitcoins for a while, just as a hobby. I, I do it with a couple of my own computers. I'm not I'm not into it as an industry. There's lots of people who devote huge amounts of resources to it. I don't. I just do it for fun to play around with and familiarize myself with how it works and what you can buy. It's really, at least today, it's really not the kind of thing that replaces the cash in your pocket or your debit card for getting gas and, you know, buying a you know pack of gum at the convenience store, going to the grocery store, etc. It's a little more cumbersome than the systems we have today, at least for now. But when it comes to uh, transactions um, that you would be doing online anyway, ordering things, especially internationally, transferring money outside of national boundaries, it is vastly superior to anything we have out there already. And it's only going to get better. Um, There is a you know, there is a fee for larger transactions. It's a fairly small percentage. So the mining is where we are. We're essentially solving these complex math problems. There's a and I'm going to simplify it out there. Anybody who knows about it is going to say, well, that's not exactly right. I'm, I'm giving the kindergarten version here. You're essentially you're you're solving this problem. There's a there's something out there and you go through a bunch of different options until you find the solution. Um, it's it's you're comparing, you know, you you do one and you is that it? Nope, that's not it. Do the next one. Compare it. Nope, that's not it. It's not like just solving math that has a, a way to do it. You're just throwing all the possibilities at it till you find the right one. And then you earn those, you earn these bitcoins that come from the, uh, you know, the the central and any of the centralized to a degree this this bitcoin clearinghouse. And as the amount grows and as the value grows, it becomes harder and harder to mine these things. When if we first started, you could mine thousands of them in a short period of time. I've been mining for a year with a couple of different specialized pieces of hardware, and I've mined, mined about one point three bitcoins. Hmm. Now, that doesn't seem like much, but their current value is about $570 on the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's not bad. That's about $700 worth. Although at the time I spent some of them, it was worth a lot less. I spent some at $150 per Bitcoin. and But it's a deflationary currency, meaning in the long run, it's going to grow in value, assuming adoption. Mm-hmm. There's always the possibility it dies, but I don't think so. Um, and so even when all the Bitcoins are out... There's a small percentage that's taken out for these transactions. So you will be able to continue mining in perpetuity, assuming the currency is actually used. Because these transactions go out, they go back into the pool, and then miners bring these back out. It keeps the circulation of this going. Uh, and it also stop, it, it, it accounts for you know some of the lost currency that occurs in there. Mm. Just timely, it sounds like it's been set up in a very logical manner. Um, but uh, as I understand it, there have been other... Um, attempts at virtual currency. And I, I further understand that uh, there, there's a large Bitcoin bank that went under recently. Is this going to be our future? We're going to be using Bitcoin? I think it is the future. Uh, the company that went out of business was MT Gox, and they had a lot of problems. But I think it's important to understand that we are in the very early stages of this, where the people who are using Bitcoin are the early adopters, they're the techies, and it's in such an early stage now that we can't say that what's happening today is the way it's going to look five or ten years from now. There's going to be a tipping point in the future as Bitcoin becomes more user-friendly and more accessible to the average person. And I can tell 
I'm listening to everything that John's saying, and I understand what he's saying, but I know that most people out there are listening to it, and their eyes are glazing over, and they're saying, wow, I need to lay down and take a nap after listening to that, because it's complex, and it doesn't seem to make sense. But the key thing to understand about Bitcoin is the promise of what it's going to bring to us in practical services. So for me, I'm in Hong Kong, I'm transferring money internationally, and I can pay anywhere from 2% up to 7% just to move money from the United States over to Hong Kong. I have to go through, I have to, trans, I have to buy Hong Kong currency from U.S. dollars, I have to transfer it over here, I have to go through a company to do that, and it takes about four days to do it. With Bitcoin, I can make that transfer instantaneously. It doesn't take any time, and I don't lose anything in the transfer. It costs me virtually nothing. And so if you look at PayPal, for example, as a convenience, it makes it easy to send money to people. But every time you send something with PayPal, they take their 3%, which can really add up if you're doing larger transactions. Bitcoin, eventually, it will be as easy to send somebody money using Bitcoin as it is to send the money now with PayPal, but you won't have to pay the 3%. It's going to be 0.002% or something like that. And so you imagine how that might change the world if you can make these instantaneous, very inexpensive transactions. That's what gets me excited about Bitcoin. That's part of what gets me excited. Hmm. We'll have to we'll have to leave it there. We're out of out of time. Uh, just very, I was, was going to say that's that's an excellent way to put it. It's that it's the future possibility that's so exciting. It's not necessarily what you can do today. It's what we will be able to do. But it's all about adoption. It's about people understanding it. And if people are concerned that they can't understand it, just try to just try to explain derivatives to somebody. And that's done with current currencies and yeah. all that stuff. Nobody can understand it, even the people who work in derivatives. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's, so just because you can't understand it doesn't mean it can't be really cool. Right. And it is. And, and uh, it's just it's, it's exciting new horizons in the virtual world. Uh, we do have a comment from Steve in Arizona um, who takes a, a little bit of an issue with something that uh, Josh said. Uh, we will email this to Josh and get his response, and we'll get this on uh, tomorrow, if that's okay. Uh, thanks for that, Steve. Uh, we've been talking with Josh Steinley, who is in Hong Kong. He is His, uh, his group is, or his uh, company is MWI. It's an um, online marketing firm. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. And uh, Jonathan Choate from SD7 Technology Group in Logan. Thanks. Always great to be here. Tomorrow, the book is The Predator Paradox. How can we humanely control predators such as wolves? We will have with us uh, a guest on that topic. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. In addition to the 25 million people in this country who have been diagnosed with diabetes or who have it but don't yet know that they do, an estimated 79 million people have entered the danger zone known as pre-diabetes. Their blood glucose levels are higher than normal but have not yet risen to the level at which they would indicate a diagnosis of diabetes. In people with pre-diabetes, the pancreas may not be working as efficiently as it once did, or the body may be gradually building a resistance to the insulin it produces so that the hormone can't do as good a job of clearing glucose from the bloodstream. The good news is that type 2 diabetes is preventable. Diabetes prevention is as basic as eating more healthfully, becoming more physically active, and losing a few extra pounds. And it's never too late to start. This is Lisa for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah.
commentator, Thad Box. Over half a century ago, I took a photograph of a beautiful African woman in Logan, Utah. The woman was Soraya, wife of my graduate student, El Rashid Abdelmajid. Soon after the couple returned to the Sudan, Soraya and one of Rashid's sisters were kidnapped and sold into slavery. Rashid never quit searching for his wife and sister. He became a powerful man in the Sudanese government and was able to travel widely looking for his lost love. About 40 years ago, Rashid was in Saudi Arabia where a friend reported seeing a woman who just might be Soraya. But Rashid died without finding either woman. Today, slavery is alive and well in the world. Recently, the Boko Haram terrorists kidnapped several hundred girls from a Nigerian school. They took some as wives, and the rest they intend to sell as slaves. Mothers of the girls wailed in protest. An outraged world joined them. Celebrities, including the Pope and the First Lady Michelle Obama, file newspapers and television screens with support. But for the most part, we Americans celebrated Mother's Day with flowers, Sunday brunches, and purchases to fuel a commercial event that employs mothers working for wages that will not support a family. President Lincoln abolished slavery in America in 1863, but there are still women who labor in servitude. Nigerian girls are sold into slavery, and American women work for wages that will not feed their children. This is Thad Box. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Hello, this is Terry Guy, Business Development Manager at Utah Public Radio. Together, contributing members and program sponsors make public radio possible. If your business would like to be recognized on air for supporting UPR, please call 435-797-3215. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Stay tuned for Living on Earth. The time now is 10 o'clock.